We're going to be looking this morning at a two-part sermon. The first part is going to focus primarily on the story of the Good Samaritan. The second part, next week, will focus on the Great Surprise. And uh, rather than tell you what that's all about, I'll let that be a surprise. But as you uh, look into your Bible in Luke chapter 10 and verses 25 through 37, we're going to be looking at the story of the Good Samaritan. The key word today for those of you, and I do appreciate it when you come up and let me know how many times I've said a particular word that is our key word for the message, that helps you listen more carefully, and it also it encourages me to know that you are listening. So the word today is the word see. We're going to be looking at that very closely. So I'd like to begin by reading to you the story of the Good Samaritan. Now before I read this, let's stop and think for a moment about how If this is a parable, then Jesus can provide all the details just by his own creative decision, like an author writing a a fictional story that represents the truth, but is not an actual event in time and space history. But if, in fact, it is a story, if Jesus is reporting something that actually happened, then we need to stop and ask ourselves, how would we have the details of that story? Who could be reporting on it what has happened? And the answer to that would probably be the man who was beaten and left alongside the road. That after he has recovered from his injuries and returned to his friends and family, that he would tell the story of laying there on the road as these events occurred. And so I want you to think of it in that way. I I personally believe that this is a story, not just a parable, but a true story that actually happened. And so we read in in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, tested Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked 
and pass by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now this is a famous passage in God's word. We have hospitals named after the Good Samaritan. There's even a a secular organization called Good Sam that encourages people to look for opportunities to be kind and helpful to others. Many Christians are involved in that organization as well, but it's intended just to celebrate and support the idea of neighborliness, of doing good toward one another. But when you stop and look at the uh, implications of this story, we're dealing with, uh, again, the issue of, is this story intended to speak to us as those who are in the courtroom of God's justice, as an issue of justification before God, and how, in fact, we are brought to a place of redemption, of reconciliation, of salvation? Is this a means toward that end? Or is this speaking to us as members of the family of God, already having been born again? God is our Heavenly Father. We are being instructed and disciplined by God within the setting of the family room. And so this is an important distinction to make. I want you to imagine for a moment that we have a teenager laying on his bed in his bedroom. And his father comes into the room and he says, "Uh, Son, uh, I'd like you to clean up your room. It's getting really cluttered. There's a lot of dirty clothes on the floor. Your bed's not made. Uh, It's really embarrassing. I'd like you to clean up your room. And the son responds to his father, Dad, I, I appreciate what you're saying here, but I know that you love me. I know that I've been accepted into this family and you've embraced me without any obligation. There is no no works involved. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone. There is no reason for me to get up and clean up my room because I don't want to add to uh, the work of God here. You have already forgiven me. You have already saved me. I'm already born into this family, and so there's nothing left for me to do. I I can't repay you for that, and and there's no way that I could ever add to the perfect work of your bringing me into this family, so I'm not going to clean up my room. (laughs) We realize how ridiculous that would be. And yet sometimes we slip into that mindset as Christians that because I am saved 
And it has been by grace alone, through faith alone, not of works, so no one can boast. And so when my Heavenly Father says, I want you to do this for me, we balk at that and say, no, I can't add to the finished work of Christ. I can't do anything. But that's courtroom vocabulary. I can't do anything to add to my justification. That is by Christ's bud alone. But my Heavenly Father has plans for my life. He intends to grow me up, to bring me to maturity, so that I can bear fruit and bring glory and honor to His name. This is not courtroom vocabulary. This is family room vocabulary, where we become disciples of Christ, and where we change our ways, where we obey by faith the instruction that comes to us through Christ himself and also through the epistles written by Paul and Peter and and all the others. So we're always going to be looking at this issue and having to, to identify, is this passage speaking to me in the courtroom setting regarding my justification before God? Or is it speaking to me in the family room setting regarding my sanctification before God? And this passage is a difficult one. Because Jesus says things in this passage and in another passage we're going to look at more closely next week uh, in terms that, that if these things are not happening in our lives, we are not saved, that we are still lost. And so let's take a look at that together. How does this fit with salvation by grace alone through faith alone? In Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 4 through 10, we have the famous passage from the Apostle Paul where he describes our condition before uh, we were saved. And then he begins to talk about the means by which we were saved. And picking up in verse 4, we read, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, that's sin, made us alive together with Christ. And then parenthetically, by grace you have been saved. And verse 6, And raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what God has done in the in the realm of the spiritual, is he has dealt with us as though we were in Christ when he went through his death and his burial and his resurrection. We have died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. We have been raised from the dead in Christ. We have ascended into the heavenly realm in Christ. We have been seated next to the Heavenly Father in Christ. So we are in Christ, and all that Christ has done and is doing, we are in him, participating with him in that. And so in this passage, Paul is describing a reality that is mind-boggling, but it's true. We are already there. Okay? We are, that is the security that we have in Christ, is that we are already 
participating, seated in the heavenlies in Christ, and yet we continue down here on earth to live our lives. And we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. It's, it's already accomplished for us. And now we are to become in this world by the means of a progressive, ongoing sanctification process, to becoming more and more like Jesus. Eventually, this reality in heaven and the reality of where we are here on earth come together and we go into eternity as members of the bride, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and on into adventures that are beyond our imagination. But these things are being revealed to us, Paul says, by the Spirit. So he continues. That, or in order that, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's always focused on Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is the one who has all these blessings. We share all of these blessings because of our relationship to him. We are in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Some argue as to whether or not the word that is referring to faith or whether it's referring to the entire process. But regardless, the point is, it's a gift. That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast and say, I'm, I'm here because I was smarter than the average Christian. You know, I had the good sense to repent and, and come to Christ. No, we, we are drawn to Christ by the Father. We are drawn to God by the Spirit. We are like those dry bones in the Old Testament. When the Word of God is spoken over them, they begin to move and rattle and come together and stand up as, a, as an army of righteousness. And it's not like the bones were laying there thinking about this. They responded to the Word of God. The Word of God is the power. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And the believing itself is a gift from God. And therefore we, have, we bring nothing to our salvation but the sin that gets forgiven. That's our contribution to the whole process. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. But notice how Paul wraps this up in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. And the word workmanship here has the connotations of craftsmanship, that we are a master craftsman's work. And he has created us in Christ Jesus. Notice how many times he says, in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We have been brought out of the darkness of this world into the kingdom of his dear son for good works. And notice it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has already prepared good works and sometimes I think it would help if we'd left the S off of it and said, good work. 
Because we tend to take good works and put it into this religious kind of a uh, uh, mystical place when in fact it's a very practical thing. The things we're going to be looking at today are extremely practical. They are good work. Do some good work. You know, in each relationship in your life, go and, go and do some good work. Good works makes it feel a little bit more religious than it is intended to be. But God has prepared these good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, Jesus has addressed this issue before, and, I, and there's a little bit of additional color and, and uh, depth brought to this. Remember how I've talked about how God has given us two eyeballs instead of just one? And so that gives us depth per- perception, because my left eye and my right eye are just slightly off away from one another. When I look at an object, I triangulate that object, and I'm able to tell not only uh, what it is, but I can tell how far away it is. I have depth perception, three-dimensional perception. If I close one eye, then it's very hard to tell how, how far away something is. Reaching out and trying to, for instance, pick an apple off a tree, when you've got one eye covered, you have a tendency to try to grab it before your hand is there. Or, or you go beyond it and, because you can't tell how far away it is because you're only looking at it with one eye. Kids, try that today. Try to cover up one eye and reach out and touch something and see how much more difficult it is when you're looking at it with just one eye. Well, God has given us, in a sense, four eyes. Okay? He's given us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in many cases, these stories are repeated or different versions Uh, different situations in which the same instruction is given, although it's to different individuals. So sometimes it's it's a repeat of the same scene. Sometimes it's another scenario that's like the other one. And in this case, in Mark chapter 12, we get another example of the same kind of question. Only in this case, it's Jesus who's asked the question, and Jesus is the one who answers it. Then one of the scribes came, And having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he, that is Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first commandment of all is, hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So in the previous passage, we have a a lawyer asking Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? And he asked him, well, what do you read in in the law? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. In this case, a lawyer or one of the scribes is asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And this, of course, is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and then you are to tie these things to your hand and to your forehead and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates and do all whatever else it takes for you to be reminded of what you know to be the will of God. 
And so the mind shows up in Deuteronomy, not in a, a list, but rather as a way to remember the other three things that are on that list. And so we have this passage. Now, I see this as similar to, have you ever noticed in the obituary section of, a, of the newspaper when someone has passed away? And, and there'll be a little note there that says, in lieu of flowers, would you please make a donation to the departed's favorite charity? And they list the charity and give a contact info there and say, so rather than filling the funeral home with flowers that will only be there for a day or two, uh, please take that money and give it to my favorite cause. Has anybody ever seen that before? Okay, I'm not, you're not, I'm not losing you there. Now, I think God is doing something like that. Because you see, God wants us to love him. But the problem is, he doesn't need anything. Have you ever thought about that? God is not up there running out of cash, okay? He's not lacking flowers. He doesn't need anything at all. And so he's saying to us, listen, I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, but I don't need anything. But I know somebody who does. And he's called your neighbor. I want you to show your love for me by the way you love and take care of that neighbor. And by doing so, I will accept that as though you did it for me. And so that is why these two commandments go together. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Love your neighbor as though your neighbor was yourself. And so whatever you have done for yourself, then that would be a good list of things to do for your neighbor. But there is a qualifying word and we find this over and over again in the passages that relate to this, and that is the word need. Need, as we're going to see, is the key that opens the coffers of the body of Christ. We respond to needs, not wants, generally speaking, but needs. We respond to needs. And so, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is to meet the needs of your neighbor. And that's doable. That's not unreasonable. The principle of loving God by loving your neighbor is rooted in the doctrine that is referred to as the Imago Dei. It's, a mo it's, it's honoring the image of God in your fellow man. Being able to see in your fellow man an image of God that is worthy of respect and honor and consideration and generosity. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And so the ladies don't miss out on this. The image of God is in every human being. And in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, we see how serious God takes this. He says, Surely your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. 
From the hand of every beast, I will require it from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Now we could go off into a civics lesson at this point. But the reality is that in this commandment, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. God is now creating the institution of state, of the state, of government, human government. Human government has an obligation to protect the image of God in all human beings by the use of capital punishment whenever anyone takes the life of a human being in an act of murder. The commandment is not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not murder. Because we don't have the authority to take the life of our fellow man, but the state does. And we see that over and over again throughout the Bible, that God has entrusted to government the sword of his justice, and it's intended to be wielded in such a way as to punish those who do evil and to honor those who do right. And one of the major areas of evil is murder. Now, this idea that you, you show your respect for the image of God by punishing murder, well, the opposite of murder is not apathy. Okay? The opposite of murder is love. The opposite of murder is to lay your life down for a friend, to die for someone rather than to take the life of someone in an act of violence. And so with this principle, and by the way, all of the commandments of God have that negative and positive uh, part to them. You know, thou shalt not steal, okay? That's a negative, don't steal. But we know that God's purpose is not simply that we stand around passively not stealing. Paul writes, let him who stole steal no more. But rather, let him work with his hands, the thing which is good, in order that he may have something to share with those others in need. And so here we have the repentant thief is not just no longer stealing, he's earning and he's sharing what he generates as a legitimate prophet. He's sharing that with others in their time of need. And so... The principle is here. Jesus is taught on it. When he answers the question, the lawyer is uh, responding properly, and Jesus says, you got it. Now go and do that, and you'll live. And back in, well, we'll continue in Mark here. The scribe responds to Jesus when Jesus gives the right answer. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. Good job, Jesus. Son of God, creator of the heavens and the earth. You got it right. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this guy's getting it, right? And so Jesus responds and says to him, 
when he, when he saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are close. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if this guy came to Christ at some point, you know, in the book of Acts, or if not sooner, because he's not far from the kingdom. He's, he's seeing something you know, very important, and Jesus says, you're not far from the... He doesn't say you're in the kingdom. That is only possible when you come to Christ and are born again. But he's not far from the kingdom. Not all the way in, but close. And so, how does this insight bring one closer? What's going on here? How are we going from the, ju- the, the courtroom of justice to the family room of God's care and, and love as our Father? What's going on? Well, only, only a new heart can produce the obedience of faith that the greatest commandment actually requires. You can't keep the greatest commandment completely enough to earn your way into God's favor. I mean, it, we are already sinners. We've already blown it. There's enough on our record already to send us to an eternal hell. And to say, well, I'm going to make up for it by doing better from now on. Well, that's nice, but it's not going to cut it. You need a Savior. You need the Savior to pay for your sins. And in paying for your sins and you trusting in that, you come to Christ and you are are born again. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the promise that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of this promise. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is in 36, verse 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone, that's the stubborn rebellion in your heart, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's a soft, responsive heart, warm, responsive heart. I will put my spirit within you. And the result of all of this is I will cause you to walk in my statutes, not coerce you. There's a difference. I'm not going to make you do this. I am going to cause you to do this by giving you a new heart and a new spirit and the Holy Spirit. You see how that works. That is why you can't get into the kingdom of God just by changing your mind and trying to do better. You need a new heart, and you can't create that. You need a new spirit, and you can't cause that. You you need the Holy Spirit, and you definitely cannot generate that. And the result will be you will keep my commandments and do them. You'll keep them, and you'll do them. Do you remember how Paul said that God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure? To will is to know what pleases God and to hold it tightly and then to do it when you have the opportunity to do it. And so in this passage, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And so we see in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of his name among all the nations. 
The obedience of faith is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Ezekiel. And the lawyer did not have this new heart and this new spirit that produces it. So he's close to the kingdom, but he's not in the kingdom yet. Hopefully, prayerfully, he came into the kingdom at some point. But you must be born again in order to see and to enter the kingdom of God. And this is the key, I believe, that helps us understand what's going on in the story of the Good Samaritan and also in the presentation of Jesus concerning the great surprise. In John chapter 3 and verses 3 through 7, Jesus answered and said to him, speaking to Nicodemus at night in a midnight meeting, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, remember Ezekiel, sprinkling water on you, giving you his spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Being born again causes the believer to see something that the unbeliever cannot see. All right? When you come to faith in Christ, your eyes are opened spiritually, and you begin to see. And I'm not talking about seeing angels and demons. I'm talking about seeing the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And when you are born again, you will be able to see the kingdom of God. And not only see it, but also enter into it. Begin to participate in it. Begin to seek the interests of it. And enjoy the benefits of being a member, a citizen, a subject of the kingdom of God. Now, the lawyer, when Jesus said to him, you got it right. Go ahead, do that, and you will live. Now, that's a true statement. If a person could keep the law perfectly, he would live. But Jesus knows you can't keep the law perfectly. You won't keep the law perfectly. And so he's not just gaming this guy. He's leading him into a realization he's already in trouble says, go ahead, do it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. Go ahead, do it. And you can just see the wheels turning in the lawyer's mind. He's going, wait a minute. I'm not doing that very well. And so, wishing to justify himself, it says, he said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? Can't we find some technicality here that will get me off the hook? You know, so he's asking, you know, when he realized that he has not been loving his neighbor as he should, he's saying, well, you know, technically speaking, who is my neighbor? I mean, how are we to know for sure? 
Maybe these people I didn't love were not really my neighbor. And that's the context for Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. So we have to remember that. The whole reason Jesus is telling this story is to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And so he says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to, Je- to Jericho and f- fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the story is being told of the Good Samaritan in answer to the question, who do I have to love? Who is my neighbor that I have to love? Now, religious people, those who are religious but unsaved, they're not born again, they don't have the Spirit of God, they don't have a new heart, religious people pass up all their opportunities to show love to others. They just pass them by. And there's a reason for that. Now we see in Luke 10, 31, now by chance a certain priest came down that road and we saw, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He didn't even go over and look closely. He just went to the other side and kept moving. Likewise, a Levite. Now the priest is a part of the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, his job is to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And he's a very, very important part of the Jewish faith, Jewish religion. It is not his job as a priest to help people on the road. That's not his job. He's just a religious guy. He's a professional religious person. The Levites, however, were the tribe that was, a, was assigned the responsibility to take care of the temple and to do all kinds of other uh, chores. They were kind of like the deacons in relationship to the priests. And the priest, uh, his job was very narrow, offer sacrifices, uh, issue blessings, you know, fulfill the law of the temple. The Levite was to do everything else pretty much, helping in every way. So as the Levite passed by, when he arrived at that place, he came and looked. So he came over, you can just see him going over and stooping over this guy. You know, you can almost imagine him taking his pulse, you know, getting a sense of, but then it says he passed by on the other side. So the Levite came closer, but he didn't actually help the man who's on the road. And this priest and the Levite represent all the religious people in this world who mistakenly think that they can love God without loving their fellow man, who is in fact made in the image of God. To not help your fellow man in his time of need is an act of disrespect to the image of God in your fellow man. Now, such people always have an excuse for passing by others in need because they live to be admired by others. They do not live to serve others. They can't see where serving others fits into the bigger picture of God's economy, his, his kingdom. And so the Good Samaritan was able to see this opportunity and to show love. Now, I don't want to read too much into what the Samaritan was thinking at the time. Jesus is reporting this story as it is, and he doesn't give us the inner life of the Samaritan. Okay, we don't, we don't get to hear his thoughts. But I want to point out here, in the, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came and he saw him, and he had compassion. 
And then he went about bandaging his wounds. And did you know that the first, pretty much the only, the only medical advice we have in the, in the Bible that I'm aware of, I, I maybe need to study this a little bit more, but is this oil and wine. Did you know that oil, pouring oil into an open wound actually protects the wound from infection and wine kills any infection that's already there? Now this is in a pre-medical era. This is a pre-scientific era. And this Samaritan, Jesus tells us, poured oil and wine into his wounds, which is a good thing. It, it protects and it purifies. And without knowing any of the science behind it, that's what they did. And I think that we should take some... That's why I believe that true medical care is an act of neighborly love more than a, a profession. And, and if you're going to really be a good doctor, you're going to do it with a heart and attitude of a good Samaritan, a neighbor. Neighbor love is the basis for the medical community. And I'm all for doctors, I'm all for nurses, I'm all for all the technology, but I'm saying the heart of it is neighbor love. And when it becomes anything other than that, it becomes dangerous because it becomes driven by profits and other motives. I feel the same way about teaching. I think teaching should be parent love. You know, you're standing there in the place of the parent, you're teaching a child, you should be loving this child the way a parent would love this child, not just seeing it as a job or as a way to change the course of a culture, you know, in some particular way. You see, God's Word reveals education as parental. He reveals medicine as neighbor, neighborly love. So he pours oil and wine into his injuries. He puts him on his own animal, probably a donkey, and he leads him to an inn. So he's walking while this man, this injured man, rides. He gets him to the inn. He takes care of him for the rest of the day and overnight. And then on the next day, he gives two days' wages uh, to the innkeeper and asks him to take care of this man. And if he needs any more than that, he'll, he'll make up for it when he comes back through. Because evidently, this Samaritan goes back and forth to Jericho as a part of his business. And that can, that's an important point, by the way. Take care of him. The Samaritan could, Samaritan could see the injured man as a great opportunity that the merely religious men could not see. Now what could the, the Samaritan see that the others could not see? He could see in some, whether it was, a, was overt or, or simply almost subconscious, he could see the image of God in his fellow man. An opportunity to show kindness to someone laying half, de- half dead on the s- beside the road. He could see his opportunity to show his love for God by the way he took care of this man who had been left for dead. He could see this man as a way to lay up treasure in heaven because Jesus taught on how we do that. Whenever you give your unrighteous mammon away in response to the leading of God to share with others in their need. You're not divesting yourself of that money. You're simply reallocating your investments into a more eternal and secure place where 
it will not be lost or stolen. The Samaritan could see, in a spiritual sense, the kingdom of God. Now, again, this is before the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. This is before a lot of the instruction that would come later through the apostles. But this Samaritan is acting in ways that Christians ought to act. He's doing what believers in Christ ought to do. And so we have to see it as a preview of what it's going to look like to be in the kingdom of God, participating, seeing the kingdom, looking around, seeing our opportunities to love one another as we should. So the Good Samaritan could see in the injured man a wonderful opportunity to honor the image of God in his fellow man. And this kind of seeing is what turns goats into sheep. This is the difference between the sheep and the goats in Jesus' rebuke of Israel. So we come back to the question, who is my neighbor? Who, who technically speaking, is my neighbor? And Jesus asked him, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? Now Jesus just flipped this question. I don't know if you noticed it. But the question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, who was neighbor to the man? You see what just happened? It's not a question of who do I have to love, it's who do I get to love? The original question was, who, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, which of these was neighbor to the man in need? So, if that's the quick case, what is the answer to the question? The best way to answer the question, who do I get to be a neighbor to, is whoever in this world bears in themselves the image of God so that any act of kindness shown toward them will be received by God as an act of loving kindness toward Jesus himself. Do you see how that changes the whole picture? It's not who do I have to love. It's who do I get to love. Who is my opportunity to show loving kindness toward Jesus Christ himself as if Jesus was in the situation of need? And that includes every neighbor, every needy neighbor, you will ever meet in your life. Now there are qualifying passages in the Bible. I'm not going to go into all of them at this point. But the point is, we're told at one place, it is a sin, it's offense to God to give money to the rich. Because they don't need it. And the only reason to give gifts like that to the rich is in order to ingratiate yourself to them and hopefully get in on, on their wealth. So sending gifts and favors and things like that to wealthy people is discouraged in the Bible because its motivation is not love, but rather an attempt to wheedle your way into the, the social life of the, of the wealthy person. We're to give in response to need. The thief who, who stops stealing is intended to start earning and then sharing with those who have need. And so, 
Our needy neighbor is the one that we should target in this adventure of showing our love for God by the way we love and care for our neighbor. Now, does being a neighbor include every need I will ever become aware of around the world? We live in a very difficult time in, the, in regard to this. The answer, I believe, is no. Now, this could be controversial. I'll just kind of hear me out, and then you decide whether this makes sense to you or not. The word neighbor implies geographic proximity. That's, in the original context, your neighbor was the person that you see during your normal routines in life. They're your neighbors. We live in an age of modern media. And the modern media allow us to know more about the needs that are on the other side of the world than we do about the needs on the other side of the apartment wall. We can be living right next to somebody who's in desperate need and we're sending our money around, somewhere around the world to help somebody there. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to help somebody when your heart goes out to them because you read an article in a magazine or a newspaper and you decide you want to help out. That you know, Storms happen on the other side of the country, the other side of the world. We all pitch in and try to help out as we can. But I will tell you something. There's a lot of corruption in that kind of charity. There's a lot of dis misuse, redirecting of funds. Uh, I've been on the boards of several organizations in my lifetime. And you, and you know, there are so many ways to call uh, something administrative expenses so that a very small fraction of what's actually donated gets to the need and most of it goes to salaries and goes to uh, other, other things going on. Now, I don't mean to make you skeptical of, 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 of worthwhile charities. I'm simply saying, you know, when you go and knock on the door of your neighbor's apartment and you say, I feel like God wanted me to give this to you because I, I, I sense that you're, you're, you're struggling. And so here, there's no administrative overhead, Right? It just all goes to the need. And there's an opportunity to follow up with conversation, sharing meals, inviting people over, having barbecues, doing things. Love your neighbor as yourself has some geographic proximity to it. This Samaritan was not going out looking for people alongside the road. He was going on his way to business, and he stopped when he saw a need. And because this man beside the road is within his geographic proximity, he is his neighbor. It's not a matter whether he's the right race or the right you know, ethnicity or, or anything else. He could be any, of a, any number of imaginable characteristics, but he's a man in need along the road. He's my neighbor, and it's my ob opportunity. Not my obligation. Please understand, this is not offered to us as some kind of new law that you get saved by doing this. No, this is your opportunity to show your love for God who doesn't need anything you have to offer by giving to his favorite charity. 
and his favorite charity is laying there beside the road half dead. And God says, here's your opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. And that's what the Good Samaritan did. This is our salvation. Now, don't don't get this wrong. What has God saved us from? He has saved us from our self-centered, prideful, blinded way of death into the kingdom of his dear Son, where we can see the kingdom of God among us in the lives of fellow human beings, not just the saved, not just our brothers in Christ, but also our brothers and sisters by creation. We can see them in ways we can never see them before, and we can respond to them in their times of need in ways that we can eagerly and cheerfully get involved in, and it's not going to be impractical because we're not trying to save the world. We're trying to love our neighbor. So, Jesus said to the lawyer when he answered the question, who was, who, showed, who was the neighbor to the man who was hurt? He said, the man who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This, this is what salvation looks like. It's the ability to see. Until you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot participate in the kingdom of God. You can't seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and enjoy the benefits that all the things that you need will be provided for you. How? How are all the things we need provided for us when we seek first the kingdom of God? Because the relationships we have with one another within the kingdom of God allow us to be the neighbor in need. And to have others use that as their opportunity to show their love for God by the way they reach out and care for us. Do you see how beautiful that is? Why, why do we want our church to grow? Have you ever asked you that question? Would it be so we have more singers? You know, more people singing the songs? No, it's so we have a larger representation of the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, more people to love more people to notice when they are in need, more people that we can see opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven by the way we share with one another in our time of need. And it is need that opens the coffers. That's what opens my wallet. And that's what should open your wallet or your purse. When you become aware that someone has a need, it's your opportunity. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 again, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You've been saved from the world of self-centeredness. You've been saved for the kingdom of selfless love as we share with one another whatever we have to give. And these good works God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we cannot boast in our ability to see the kingdom of God. It's a gift from God. 
And not only are the good works prepared for us, but we have been prepared for the good works. God is on both sides of that equation. He's prepared us to do the good works, and he's prepared the good works for us to do. And so he's got this all planned out, and he's prepared for it. Our basic good work is to show our love for God by the way we love and care for our neighbor in his time of need. And it is this ability, or sadly, this inability, to see the image of God in others that is the basis for the great surprise that we're going to look at next week. To give you just a little bit of a preview, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him And he will separate them one from another as a a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. Now those of you who know your Bibles know what's coming next. But what Jesus says next is crucial to our understanding of what it means to be born again. Because to be born again is to be able to see the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, to participate in the kingdom of God. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. You remember the passage. We're going to go into this deep next week. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at how this ability to see and enter the kingdom of God by being born again from above operates practically in our lives as Christians. And we're going to look at how it is that all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ avoid getting caught on the wrong side of the great surprise when Jesus returns in glory. We are not going to be saved by being nice to people. We are going to be nice to people because we're saved. Do you see the difference? We're not going to do these things in order to be saved, but they will be the inevitable consequence of our having been saved and now being able to see the opportunities all around us. And to be able to, as Paul puts it, give cheerfully because the Lord loves a cheerful giver let's pray Lord thank you for your goodness I pray that you will make this all make sense in our hearts and our minds and that we will eagerly embrace the truth that this is what you saved us for Lord may we wholeheartedly dive into this adventure and begin to live our lives Not trying to save the world, but just being ready to love our neighbor as ourselves as we go about our business, loving you 
and loving one another. We ask it in Jesus' name.